university professors spend a lot of time talking about a lot of things with each other at academic conferences and in academic journals. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals, and I want to talk to you. Some of the most interesting thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard by people outside of the walls of academia, so I'm on a mission to bring those thoughts to you. Fabulous people, interesting ideas, brilliant conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell, and this is a hard hat area. You're on with the Deconstruction Workers. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, whenever it is you are listening to this. This is the Deconstruction Workers. My name is Dr. Christopher Bell, and with me today on the line, our guest worker is Natalie Shepard. Natalie Shepard is in the PhD program in English at LSU, Louisiana State University. Her specialty is in classics and adaptation studies. I met her at Denver Comic-Con. Both of us present there on a regular yearly basis, and I thought that she should come on and talk about her specialty area, which I think is really, really interesting for us, which is... Today, we're talking about fan fiction. What do fans do with texts when nobody's looking? So, uh, welcome to the show, Natalie. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, I think this is going to be a fun one to wrap up. The By the way, listeners, this is the season finale for season one. Um, so, it'll be our last show in this first season. And I thought this would be a really great fun one to end up on. We've done so much this season about fandom in so many different kinds of ways that I thought fan production might be a good bookend. Wow, I wasn't aware of that. I feel ultra special now. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> let's let's dive in to fan fiction. What are, what are we talking about when we say fan fiction? Let's put some walls around that. Well, fan fiction is a, a very large and kind of nebulous concept. We mostly talk about it in regards to very contemporary works of fiction written about a world or characters or book series or movie series for which the copyright is held by someone else. And that's kind of important in our modern definition of fan fiction, because if we get rid of that copyright aspect, then almost every piece of literature ever is basically just fan fiction going all the way back to Virgil's Aeneid through Sherlock's pastiche uh, fictions. So fan fiction as we know it today basically starts with Star Trek. This is at least where in our modern terms we start using the term fan fiction. Right. Which centers around Star Trek fans in the 1960s writing stories about Star Trek characters that were not written by the people who make Star Trek. Right. And this was pre-internet days. So these were all zines that people were creating and sharing with their friends, mailing out, giving out at conventions, things like that. I think it's also interesting and something we probably ought to point out, which was by 1970, about anywhere from I think the number was anywhere from 80 to 85% of all the people writing fan fiction were women. This really sort of comes out of this female audience creating these narratives. Yeah, fan fiction has always been for women and by women, definitely, and it still is today. So let's talk about that. Why, why do we think that is? Well, there's all kinds of different theories and, and reasons. I tend to think that 
women in particular are very kind of prolific in the fan fiction communities because it's a way of seeing yourself in the mainstream in ways that we typically aren't allowed to, right? So if we just watch Star Trek or Star Wars or Harry Potter, there are definitely women there, but it's still a male-dominated story. It's still largely written by men. It still features mainly male characters. So by writing fan fiction, we can kind of insert ourselves in that narrative in a way and make it more suited to our own tastes and our own interests. I wonder even if within women who are sort of prolific in fan fiction, I wonder what the racial breakdown is of that. That's an interesting question. One would think that if you're writing fan fiction because you're, as a woman, feel like you are marginalized out of the centrality of a narrative, then you would think if you are a woman of color, you would be even more prolific. Because there'd right. be more ways you were shut out of the narrative in the first place. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and we have plenty of numbers about the male-female breakdown in fan fiction. We actually, there was a study put out by Archive of Our Own that said more writers on that particular website identified as genderqueer than male. Hmm. Yeah, I found that incredibly interesting. And we have all sorts of theories exploring queerness's role in fan fiction and the way that adolescents in particular are exploring various sexualities on this on this kind of platform. But at least in my research, I haven't come across much regarding race as far as fan fiction goes. Yeah, I just, I find that so typical, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's very unfortunately sort of stereotypical. But I do wonder if certain kinds of narratives would be more open mm-hmm. to fan fiction about race or about gender queerness or about queerness in general than other kinds of narratives. Here I'm thinking of... People who write Harry Potter fan fiction, for example. Harry Potter is a fairly open world. Mm -hmm. Lots of different kinds of characters exist in that world. And so it's pretty easy, probably, to create fan fiction around lots of different kinds of identity narratives. Star Wars is a very insular universe, even though it is intergalactic. Mm -hmm. Fewer kinds of characters, I think fewer entry points points, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it's definitely a possibility. I also wonder if it's the the medium, right, fan fiction. I wonder if there's more inclusion for people of color in more visual works. So in fan art, I know there's a ton of fan art out there featuring characters reimagined as people of color. Black Hermione, Indian Harry Potter is one of my personal favorite headcanons. Right. So I'm wondering, too, if there's a visuality involved to it. I think that's a good distinction to make that isn't really a distinction at all. Right. (laughs) Fan art is fan fiction. It's just not the written word. Mm -hmm. Just as fan editing is also fan fiction. Fan editing, for those of you who don't know, is when somebody takes a movie or a series of movies and re-edits the movie, adapts it in a different way for particular narrative purposes. So for example, there's a really great one out there, Harry Potter fan edit called The Boy Who Never Lived. And it's a version of Harry Potter in which Harry Potter dies Mm -hmm. in the beginning. And it's this whole reimagining of the story that puts Hermione at the center of taking down Voldemort. And I think it's really interesting in that it's not a completely new creation in the way lots of fan fiction stories are, where they take the narrative and go off in a completely different direction. But it is a fan fiction in 
a different medium other than the written word that restructures the narrative. Yeah, and that's why we're starting. I've been seeing this term more and more in the research to refer to this very broad community of people creating things as fan work rather than fan fiction. Right. It's more inclusive of like fan music, fan art, fan edits, fan everything. The other word that I've heard thrown around quite a bit, which full disclosure, I, I have an upcoming book that I'm publishing coming out about is this term transmediated or transmediation. Mm -hmm. This idea of taking a work and moving it into a new medium in a new way that it wasn't necessarily intended, which sort of also brings up this idea of fan work, of adapting work in ways that are unexpected. And I think there's an element of it that's necessarily unauthorized. Yeah. One of the key elements of fan fiction is that fans don't ask permission. <laughs> it's not like they're going to the author and being like, hey, can I write a new story with your character? That's not how this works. Right. One of the things that shocked me going back to research this as a grad student, as someone who was very much involved in fan fiction in like middle school, was that most of us are total criminals. None of what we're doing is legal. <laughs> right. And various levels, by the way, of support from the original authors. Absolutely. Uh, pretty famously, there are authors who are really supportive of fan fiction. Mm-hmm. J.K. Rowling tends to be pretty supportive. Naomi Novik was actually, you know, occasionally still writes fan fiction from time to time. Stephanie Meyer tends to be... Stephanie Meyer's an interesting story. So Stephanie Meyer, the creator of the Twilight series, mm-hmm. actually has links on her website to Twilight fan fiction. Yeah, several authors actually have that now, especially if they really, really love fan fiction, but Stephanie Meyer is an interesting case because E.L. James obviously profited off of some fan fiction that she wrote about Twilight. I don't know that everyone really knows that story, that this, that Fifty Shades of Grey was a Twilight fan fiction originally. It began as Twilight fan fiction called Master of the Universe. I think it's actually still floating around on the internet in some places, but in order to publish it, she did have to basically scrub all the serial numbers off of her fanfic. Right. This is not Edward and Bella. Mm-hmm. This is now these other characters. And they're definitely not vampires. Definitely not vampires. The <laughs> corporate business dude and his concubine are I, I I'm very <laughs> I'm very unfamiliar with Fifty Shades of Grey, uh, mm-hmm. thankfully, in some ways. But then there are other people, and here I'm thinking of George R. R. Martin, mm-hmm. Game of Thrones, who are very openly against fan fiction for a variety of reasons. I think in George R.R. Martin's case, he is against fan fiction because he thinks it's a bad idea for people who want to be writers not to get into the habit of creating their own universes. I think his is more Mm -hmm. technical, more of a technical opposition, as opposed to Anne Rice, interview with a vampire, vampire Lestat who has been really openly sort of emotionally against the idea of fan fiction. Right. And I think those are really interesting cases because people who have shown support for fan fiction, like J.K. Rowling, have seen a tremendous benefit from it. They're basically getting free advertising. They're creating this community that keeps going, and she doesn't really have to do anything for it. But it's encouraging this fandom to keep going years after the books were originally published. Whereas when you get into many, many more authors are against fan fiction that are in favor of it. 
many of them will hide behind the legality of it, like don't do it, it's illegal. Orson Scott Card famously threatened to sue anyone who wrote any kind of fan fiction about his work. He did, but then he recanted. He did. He recanted. He came back and he was basically like, this is advertising for my book. And so mm -hmm. why wouldn't I Why wouldn't I support this? And everyone was like, well, because you said on your website one time that it was like coming into your house and kicking your family out in the street. <laughs> so yeah. I, I don't know how you reconcile that. but Yeah, these authors have very visceral reactions to fan fiction. Diana Gabaldon, who wrote Outlander series, I think said that it makes her want to barf when she accidentally comes across it. <laughs> uh, but she also recanted and uh, now is totally in favor of fan fiction. I don't know if their agents got to them or if they realized that it was beneficial or if maybe she just read a really good fan fiction right. and was like, oh, all right, not so bad after all. Uh, but I, I wonder, too, if it's because, you know, as a writer, you spend so much time with these characters, you know, one on one creating them. And both Anne Rice and George R.R. Martin have, have almost referred to them as like, oh, these are my children. And when you take them, you're kidnapping them and stealing them and making them do all these dirty things. And that's usually, I mean, a fair thing to say, I guess. But they also kind of hide behind this kind of ownership of ideas and ownership of stories that I think is really counter, counter creative, counterproductive in our kind of society. Especially in the case of George R.R. Martin, because oh. one of the things that I oftentimes say to my students in popular culture studies is no author could possibly hope to know more about their own world than a dedicated fan. Uh -huh. A dedicated fan will oftentimes have an encyclopedic knowledge of the author's world and remember things about the text that authors oftentimes forget themselves. To the point where George R. R. Martin actually employs a guy to keep track of the history of his world that he cannot be bothered to keep for himself of his own characters. So that he basically has his own dramaturgist who comes in and says, actually, you're contradicting a thing you said here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, fans know way more about a work than the creator can can ever hope to know because they've studied it. They've become these fans. They've read it over and over again. And in the case of transformative fans, as opposed to, to curative or affirmative fans, which you've talked about before on this podcast, transformative fans are actually adding their own interpretation to it. So whatever beef you have with that as an author, they're not pulling this out of nowhere. They're taking your works and telling you what they think of them. And I think there's nothing more flattering than that. I would think so. I mean, for someone to not only love your work, but know so much about it that they can create within that world, especially the fan fiction authors who are able to give that some sense of, I don't know what we might call verisimilitude, right? Some sense of truth as though it were written by the actual author. Those are the best fan fictions. The ones that are so good that you would be like, if you didn't know it was fan fiction, you would say, well, this must have just got cut out of the book or this might be unpublished work or something. Right. And to want to insert yourself in this narrative, to love something so much that you want to be a part of it, I think is also a really beautiful and moving thing about fandom, especially transformative fandom. That this, this fictional work occupies such a space in your consciousness that you literally physically want to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. That you want to expend a similar energy to create within this world 
because that world means so much to you. Right. There's something sort of beautiful about that. There is, absolutely. And the fandom community, especially with, with regards to people who are creating fan fiction, fan art, fan whatever, is also so supportive of each other, even if the authors aren't, you know. Right. But the, even if they're not yeah. good. Yeah, even if the authors don't care. The fan communities absolutely do. And fan fiction, you know, as regards to the written word at least, is often a very collaborative authorship process. So you will have people commenting on where your story should go, what edits you should make, those sorts of things. Which is why going back to Fifty Shades of Grey, the fandom community was so upset because they felt like they had given her this free labor, basically, of being her editor, being her agent. And then they didn't get anything back from that. Well, and it also positions the text, interestingly for me, in that fan fiction is oftentimes used as an insult. Absolutely it is. You know, this is quote unquote just fan fiction. Mm-hmm. Or this reads like fan fiction. I've seen this quite a bit. You know, this reads like fan fiction. Right. As though inherently fan fiction is inferior. Right. And I think that's very gendered, you know, to bring it back around to the beginning. I I think it's because it's largely women producing these things and it's for no money, which in our capitalist society renders it basically useless. Right. Uh, So why would you be creating this thing if you're not going to get any kickback from it? And that's where we also draw the line between, you know, adaptation and fan fiction is, was it created for commercial consumption? Although coming out of my work in Harry Potter studies, this brings up the case of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Mm -hmm. Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, not written by J.K. Rowling, produced on Broadway, actually produced in the West End in London and then produced on Broadway. And lots of fans within the Harry Potter community have labeled that text, which is adaptation, technically, but have labeled that text as just fan fiction in order to push it outside of what we might call the canon Mm -hmm. so that it doesn't count. Right. This is all fan fiction. It's all imaginary. Nothing that happens in The Cursed Child matters for, you know, my understanding of the pure story. Mm-hmm. So I think that's another distinction that we could and, and maybe even should make is this idea that fan fiction is fun, but doesn't quote unquote count. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's getting harder and harder to distinguish as we move towards a media era of collaborative authorship. Whereas before it was really easy to say what was canon It was whatever the author had written down. Now, when we're talking about movie franchises, when we're talking about stage adaptations, when we're talking about plays, when we're talking about toys and and games, it gets much, much harder to distinguish, you know, what is official? What is the word of God author, author approved canon versus what is just, you know, fan fiction? Where do we draw that line between different versions of the same text that are commercially available Mm -hmm. versus versions of the text that are not commercially available or are available for free yet still draw readership, right? I'm thinking Mm -hmm. Kindle, Amazon Kindle now has Mm -hmm. a feature on it where you can download fan fiction. Absolutely. So authors are giving their labor to these worlds that don't belong to them Mm-hmm. And then putting them on Amazon, and Amazon's distributing them. Yes. And I'm sure garnering some kind of revenue in some kind of way, whether through ads or And whatnot. that's kind of my point, is 
Mm-hmm. What do we what do we do with that? I mean, that's that's the history of the world. Women's labor just being there for everyone to use <laughs> and women not to profit off of. Yeah. I suppose that is one way to yeah. look. I suppose <laughs> that is one way to look at it. It's it seems to me that in many ways, fan fiction is the ultimate in longtime listeners of this show will know that Henry Jenkins from USC is sort of the patron saint of this podcast. Mm-hmm. But Henry <laughs> Jenkins has this term that he's been using since the 19... 19- well, it's actually not his term. It's actually Michelle Deschateau's term that he sort of repositioned. But this term textual poaching. Yes. And fan fiction really feels like the ultimate in textual poaching that is literally wandering around someone else's lands and taking what you want from it and using it in ways it wasn't intended. Right. Without the permission of the person who owns the land. Right. But I think positioning fiction and stories and things that aren't in many ways tangible as as stealing from someone else, I, I think is slightly problematic here. Because, I mean, these are ideas, these are worlds... And by putting them out there, I mean, the authors are sharing their works and by not approving of or by actively, you know, fighting against fan fiction, I think what it's saying is don't enjoy this to its fullest potential, right? Don't interpret this in your own way. Don't position yourself inside the story, which is theoretically what I wanted when I wrote the book. Which gets clouded with, obviously gets clouded with copyright law and whatever. I think most people... As you said earlier, copyright is a thing people hide behind because I don't think it's actually about the finance of it at all. Not for the author, for sure. Not for the author and not for the fan work creator. Right. It is for the corporate entity that distributes that and makes profit off of it. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's the what we might call the capital exchange between the author and the fan work artist. Pierre Bourdieu pretty famously said, and I think we may have even covered this previously on this podcast, but that there's more than one kind of capital. So there's financial capital, which is money, but there's also social capital, the capital of sort of who you know, what your network looks like, and there's cultural capital. And I think cultural capital is really what we're talking about here. Right. That there's a cultural capital exchange between the author and the fan artist that has nothing really to do with the financial exchange of it. Mm -hmm. That there's cultural value in the original work and fan work either enhances or detracts from that in the eyes of the author. Not necessarily in the eyes of the fan work creator or even in the eyes of the people who are consuming it. But for some authors, there is this idea of don't write fan fiction because you're doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can see where they where they're coming from with the content of a lot of fan fiction. So we talked about the really really good fan fiction where it feels like an excerpt of the book that just didn't get published. There's also really really bad fan fiction. Kind of the most famous one is is the Harry Potter fic My Immortal, which was 2006-2007 by Tara Gillespie, starring you know Ebony Darkness Dementia Raven Way. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, and there's been debate in recent years. It's it's so famous because it's so bad but people debate over whether it's actually you know satiring fan fiction whether it's a parody or whether this was you know a genuine attempt at good writing 
but uh, fan fiction is kind of overrun with these romance tropes, right? I mean, even going back to Star Trek, uh, I, I mean, the most famous one that came out of that was uh, Spock, Kirk, slash fiction. Where Spock and Kirk are in love with each other. Yes. Yes. Another really famous one, and we have an entire episode in season two already lined up to talk about this, is the one that comes out of Star Trek fan fiction as well. This woman wrote uh, Star Trek fan fiction in which she put herself in it, and then she was the most awesome person in the whole story. And we refer to that as the Mary Sue. Mm-hmm. Yes. No matter what the Mary Sue does, everybody loves the Mary Sue because Mary Sue represents the author. Mm-hmm. And putting themselves in this narrative where even in this universe of awesome characters they've created, they're still the most awesome person. And everyone <laughs> still loves them the most. Yeah. Well, why wouldn't they? Fanfic authors are just so great in general. There is something to be said for bad fan fiction being part of the reason why some authors are so opposed to it. But I also don't see, you know, there's bad writing all over the place. There's bad writing that's just published every day. But when it's bad writing about these things that you spent so much time with, it seems to strike an extra nerve. But I don't see why it shouldn't be allowed, period. I guess there's an argument to be made. I'm going to immediately contradict myself here. <laughs> it's okay. We do that often on this program. Go for it. Uh, there's an argument to be made that, you know, that this fan fiction out there is damaging to the primary property, right? So if everyone's just writing slash fic about Kirk and Spock, and it's so prolific that now people watching Star Trek can't see Kirk and Spock as anything other than in love, I guess eventually that gets around to damaging the property. But I... I don't know. I think they're kind of overestimating the power of fan fiction on that level, at least. Um, I think fan fiction kind of goes in the other direction. It empowers readers and it empowers writers. And it doesn't really affect or have anything to do with the primary property. No, I think people who would seek out fan fiction of any property are people who already consume the primary property. Mm-hmm. And it's not like they're going to stop consuming it because they read some fan fiction. Right. And in fact, they're more likely to consume more of it at a greater rate. You know, I can only read so much and then Draco and Hermione made out before (laughs) I want to go back and just read the story. Yeah, but I also think that, you know, it's great that when you finish these books, you know, when you've read all seven Harry Potter books for the millionth time, that there's this whole big expanded universe out there to go and explore and to kind of share in with other people who have read the narrative and, and think, you know, I never saw Draco and Hermione together, but now that I've read your fan fiction, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing it. Yeah, good job. <laughs> right. we, can, <laughs> we can go back and look for the clues now. Yeah, I have something new to read for the next time I go back to the, the books. Absolutely. And it helps us rethink what we already think we know about the text. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, in a way that's very accessible, too. You know, um, as academics, this is what we do pretty much all the time. We rethink the text and we interpret the text and we read other people's interpretations of the text. But on a fan fiction level, I think it's much more accessible to a much broader audience in, in, a, in a very interesting way. I would totally agree. I, I spend the vast majority of my time at academic conferences sitting in rooms with people who are constructing mm-hmm. these elaborate interpretations of whatever artifact they're working with. 
And there's always a part of me that's like, you're just, you're, you're like publicly writing fan fiction right now. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, it's not, thing. it's not, a, I'm not, and I'm not positioning <laughs> it as a bad thing. I'm, I'm basically saying this thing that we sort of openly denigrate within, and not even within fandom studies communities, because, you know, academics tend to be pretty accepting of lots of different kinds mm-hmm. of expressions of fandom. But when you're at a place where lots of people are invested in the same text, the purists mm-hmm. tend to sort of look down on fan fiction. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely true. I think it was was it a few years ago where the the Catcher in the Rye sequel was coming yes. out, and he he did a whole interview basically defending his work, saying this is not fan fiction. This is literary criticism and satire. And I think he ended up getting sued by J.D. Salinger and losing. This was in 2009. Yeah. The guy's name was Ryan Cassidy, I think. Mm -hmm. And he, he, yeah, he basically wrote this extension of Catcher in the Rye where Holden Caulfield is an old man Mm -hmm. and is looking back on how he used to think when he was a kid. So basically it's sort of extending Catcher in the Rye out to the end of the main character's life and then looking back and critiquing Catcher in the Rye. Yes. And he, yeah, he said, this isn't fan fiction. It's not derivative work. It's uh, my way of doing literary criticism. And you're right. I think he lost. I'm pretty sure he lost that legal battle. But it was more interesting kind of to me to see how vehemently he defended against this idea. He did not want to be associated with fan fiction. Because we as a society look down on it as this this lesser form of writing, right? It's amateurish. It's derivative. Why can't people just make up their own characters, right? This is the main thrust of George R. R. Martin's position, mm-hmm. which is if you really want to be a writer and you really want to invest that much time in writing, make up your own story and write it. Don't write my story. That's bad for you as a writer. Go write your own story. But we're all just writing someone else's story is the thing. We've all kind of grown up on stories, and when we sit down to write our own, we're not creating in a vacuum. We're not creating absent of all of these other influences. I mean, even George R.R. Martin, you know, I could argue that he's just writing Tolkien fan fiction, and Tolkien was just writing, you know, medieval fan fiction. I mean, we can trace this all the way back to, you know, the very beginning of literature. Well, and ultimately, there are only three stories anyway. Absolutely. There are literally only three stories you can tell. Man versus man, man versus nature, man versus himself. That's it. Mm-hmm. And if you're telling any version of that story at all, in some ways, you're already engaging in fan fiction. Because you mm-hmm. didn't make up those, what we call master plots. You didn't, you didn't make those up. Right. You didn't build that, so to speak. <laughs> And I think it's also very gendered, you know, most of fan fiction, like we said earlier, is written by women for women. Um, most of it is fairly romantic in nature. Transformative fan fiction tends to answer a problem in the text. And very often that problem is that these two characters aren't dating. So I kind of understand why people wouldn't want to be, a, wouldn't want their particular work to be associated with that. But I also think it's it's very narrow and very kind of demeaning to women. And it also kind of creates all of these new problems. So, like, why is it a bad thing that someone wrote about Draco and Hermione dating in a, in a fiction that's, you know, a thousand words long on the Internet? Why does that offend us so much? Who does that hurt? Because if you don't like the concept of it, then just, then don't read it. 
And it doesn't hurt your understanding of the narrative that you love to not read the fan fiction. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also interesting, you know, we, we talked about Draco and Hermione, which is a fairly heteronormative relationship, if a bit weird as far as power dynamics go. But much of fan fiction tends to be about queer relationships and gay men. So why is that such a fascinating thing in fan fiction? Well, there's, there's all kinds of theories out there. But I think it stems from what you were talking about earlier, which is when you don't see yourself in the narrative, you create mm-hmm. these alternative narratives in which you or your, by you, I mean sort of your identity category becomes a part of the universe. But it's interesting that we don't see that play out in these very literal ways, right? Fan fiction isn't overrun with female characters. It's it's mostly two dudes who happen to be dating. Um, And if it's written mostly by women, why are we so interested in, you know, the dreary ship, the the Draco Harry ship? Um, I think That's a very, very common trope. And there's a couple of different theories as to why it is. One is that if you read fan fiction, one is always coded as female, right? So it's it's never about two men. But the other one that I find far more interesting is that when you have a relationship between two male characters in a story, two protagonist male characters in a story, that's the only real way to have a relationship between two equally powerful people in the world. And as women, that's something very desirable to us. I think I think as people, that's something very desirable to us, but for women in particular. I wonder, since this is the wheelhouse that we're playing with, I wonder if that's why so much of the shipping that happens in the Harry Potter universe involves Hermione, because she is mm-hmm. the only woman within the narrative who truthfully has power. Absolutely. I, I absolutely believe that's true. I mean, go and try and find some Luna Lovegood fan fiction. It's, it's really surprisingly difficult. You know, you, you can run through it in a day, I think. But Hermione, there's an infinity of possibilities out there for the stories that she's involved in and the stories that people create around her and the different people that they hook her up with, of course, because that's what we're most concerned with in the fanfic community. <laughs> there's a lot. There's, uh, there's admittedly a lot of hooking up going on in fan fiction. So much. It's a little bit difficult to get through sometimes because it is so repetitive, right? We're using these same tropes, even if we're switching up the names, even if we're switching up the characters. Although I will say within, I don't read a lot of fan fiction outside of a, a couple of very specific universes. I will say in Star Wars fan fiction, there's obviously, there's still a lot of the hooking up part, but in Star Wars fan fiction, it's a lot of people who just really want to write a space battle. It's, yeah. There's there's a lot of lightsabers and shooting going on in Star Wars fan mm-hmm. fiction that I don't know shows up in other... I don't know if it shows up in other genres. Yeah. I mostly read Harry Potter fan fiction, so I'm not familiar with any other areas where it might be, but I know that there is a lot of fiction written about the Marvel Universe, for example. I, th- I think a lot of that is still romance, but I'm sure that some of it is action-oriented. But I, I do think that Star Wars is kind of unique. You don't see a lot of Star Wars fan fiction in the traditional places that other fan fiction is hosted. Well, I think that's, again, as you were saying earlier, I think that has to do with medium. Because mm-hmm. there isn't a lot of Star Wars fan fiction being written, but if you look at fan films, Star Absolutely. Wars dominates the fan film 
universe. There's a, a really great Star Wars fan film about the a blind Jedi student who you know goes blind in her ambition to become a great Jedi, and it's and it's really beautifully done. I mean, it looks like it was done by a professional filmmaker. It's very deep. It's it's got a lot of visually interesting rhetorical choices going on, which is why I show it. It's also only like five to seven minutes long which makes it great for a 50-minute class. Fan film is really dominated by Star Wars, although I will say there's a really great Harry Potter fan film about Voldemort in the time between when he leaves Hogwarts and when he comes back to proposition Dumbledore for a job. Mm-hmm. And Warner Brothers originally had put a cease and desist on it, and then talked to the filmmakers and saw what they were doing and then rescinded and mm-hmm. are letting them finish that film, hmm. which I think is a is a super interesting thing that I don't know has happened in a lot of other places. Well, we're seeing it more and more because corporations realize it's in their best interest to treat their fans well because these are their customers, essentially. So they're letting more and more things slide, I think, over the years, especially as ownership leaves the hands of the authors and enters into these corporations, whereas authors might feel a very personal attachment to these characters. Corporations generally don't. They're more concerned with the money, which is, you know, offers up a whole other host of problems. I know this was a big thing with the with the Star Wars universe. There was a really great shot by shot remake of one of the Star Wars films that some some people made like in their backyard. There was the Indiana Jones one as well. Yeah, this was just like two mega fans making their own version of the movie like in their backyard. And George Lucas basically said, no, you can't do this. You can't release it. It was being shown like in their hometown theater. Like it wasn't being widely reproduced everywhere. It wasn't on like this was really before YouTube was a thing. But George Lucas was famously very, very protective of his works. And still kind of He is. was, but then he wasn't. Yeah. He was super protective of his work, but then at one point, he actually judged the Star Wars fan film contest. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. He did it in 2007. He, ju- he actually judged, which makes sense because he hasn't owned it in a while. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he, he judged the, the Star Wars fan movie challenge in 2007. Yeah, and I think that's part of the evolution of how we view fandoms. You know, fan fiction, anything that was kind of leeching off of these works was inferior, and now we're kind of seeing all of these great artists and these great writers come out of it, and I think we're coming around to realize that it's it's not that bad, and some of it's actually very, very good and helpful and great for society. And a lot of it fills holes. Yeah. Fills holes that the author has no intention of filling, so why would they care that someone else filled it? Often didn't even know the hole was there. What about Peter Jackson? Because there are no, zero, literally no female characters in The Hobbit. None. Uh Zero. In the way that Tolkien wrote it. So Uh is Tariel and her, you know, romance with Philly and so... Is that not just fan fiction? I mean, I think there are many, many fans who would agree that it is just fan fiction. Uh, I'm not one of them. I think Toriel's was one of the better parts of The Hobbit, which... I, I would agree with you. I felt was a pretty subpar movie anyway. <laughs> we, um, could, we could argue that point, but yeah. Yeah. But I, I know many, many people, you know, you change any little thing about the author's original vision... And you're basically committing blasphemy. It's heresy. You can't do that. You're messing with something that's already perfect. And I think we're moving out of that. 
thankfully. I actually, you know, and we've had conversation at Denver Comic-Con about this, you know, this past summer, but I care less when fans remix fan stuff than when the authors themselves go back and remix their own stuff. Mm -hmm. That to me is way more problematic. I don't care if somebody writes a story where, you know, Draco and Hermione make out after Transfiguration. I care when J.K. Rowling comes out and is like, yeah, Dumbledore's totally gay, even though that's not how I wrote it. I think that's way more problematic. Yeah, absolutely. And and J.K. Rowling is, is kind of notorious for this in the fan fiction sphere, at least when she came back and was like, Hermione should never have ended up with Ron. I mean, that caused waves of, of discontent. And I'm sure vindicated a lot of shippers uh, in the fandom who were like, yes, Hermione and Harry. <laughs> I'm sure. When an author contradicts their own work, I, I think it's more problematic than when a fan comes out and says, hey, you've been doing this thing kind of badly. Let me take it from here. Well, and this is the point of contention Star Wars fans have had or had, particularly in the 1990s when Lucas was like, I'm gonna re-release all these films and I'm gonna jack them all up and whatever. And people were like, no, don't do that, you can't. And he's like, sure I can, they're mine. Mm -hmm. But I wonder what would happen if we did it the other way. So Jackson's a special case, you know, he didn't write The Hobbit, he's just kind of adapting it. He saw a problem and he inserted a solution to it. But if J.K. Rowling had any influence at Warner Brothers and instead of, you know, Lavender Brown going from black to white, it had been the other way. Like, oh, we've got this opportunity to put a character of color into this movie series in a, in a fairly, you know, not major, major way. We're not altering Hermione or anything, but we have a, have a chance to get some visibility there. You know, if J.K. Rowling had insisted on that, what would have happened? You know, what would have been the reaction? When fans do it, there's this sort of, you know, says who. Mm -hmm. But when the author themselves does it, it carries much more weight, you know, for her to be able to go in and say, no, actually, I did write Lavender Brown as black, and you can't tell me I didn't, and so fix it. Mm -hmm. Which in many ways is part of the reason why people marginalize Cursed Child as fan fiction, because she did do that. Mm -hmm. She went in and said, yeah. I never said Hermione was white. And then they cast a black lady as Hermione and people lost their minds and went to her and was like, aren't you outraged by this? And she was like, no, because I never said it. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a problem there with J.K. Rowling. It, it's going back to Gay Dumbledore, right? Is it's, it's this attempt to fix things in the past in a way that doesn't actually mean anything. You're not authorizing the books to be re-released with these very specific descriptions of Hermione as black. You're not going back and inserting a Dumbledore love story. I'm, I'm reminded of uh, Dickens in Oliver Twist re-releasing the book with descriptions of Fagin as simply the Jew cut out like hundreds of times because someone complained to him that this was anti-Semitic. So he went back and he cut it all out. Well, he didn't cut it all out. It's, it's still fairly anti-Semitic. But he cut out a bunch and then re-released it. And it feels just disingenuous when an author comes out and says, you know, no, that's not what I meant. Here, let me fix it. But it doesn't actually fix anything. No, at some at some point you have to own your work. At some right. point you have to say, you know what? I'm glad that fans are interpreting this work in this way. I didn't necessarily intend that. And so, you know, sorry. I did that's not what I intended. I don't Yeah. You know, I'm not dissuading you from interpreting it in that way, but that's not what I meant. Mm -hmm. And then I'll do better in the future. Like, hey, I realize that this is something that y'all want. Maybe I will write a book about Dumbledore's teenage years 
relationship. Or, or surprise, Hermione's dad, the dentist we hear so much about, is black. Yeah. And so she's she's half black, and I just didn't feel the need to tell you that. Something like that. You know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And yes, is that kind of a cop-out? It is kind of a cop-out, but it's better than just being like, oh, that thing all these fans made up? Yep, I totally did that. Mm-hmm. Or in the opposite direction, you know, J.K. Rowling is also kind of notorious for going in the other direction. There was all of this talk about Lupin, for example, being a queer man because of the association that J.K. Rowling herself said with with HIV AIDS and then coming out and being like, nope, Lupin is very, very straight, guys, very straight. In fact, here's a relationship with him and a a girl. I think there was some backstory on Pottermore about it. So there was this very kind of reactionary work there as well. So it is, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's such a complex issue. Mm-hmm. When you, dear listeners, started listening to this, you had no idea how complex the world of fan fiction probably was. Um, there's a lot of issues on the table here, you know, and we could spend all day sort of unpacking those, but, but we can't. So as we often do on the show, at the end of the day, fan fiction, What? At the end of the day, I think that fan fiction sees problems with literature and tries to fix them, and there's nothing more noble than that. And the community around fan fiction is great and beautiful and should be looked at as something to emulate rather than disparage. I can get behind that. Good. I think for me, at the end of the day, anyone who's listened to this podcast for any length of time knows how I feel about American copyright laws. I think authors only own their fictional work to a point. And I think fans who choose to engage that material in ways that are unauthorized by the author, but that lend to other people having other understandings or other interpretations of the work are a good thing. And something that authors should be supportive of rather than trying to litigate against on the grounds of copyright. If you don't like fan fiction because you think that it's bad copies of your work, well, then we could have that argument. If you don't want people to do fan fiction because it violates my copyright and someone else is going to make money off of my characters, you're you're probably not a very good person. <laughs> that's That's where I come down on it. In a in a in a I much more judgmental place than you were. Sur- surprise, <laughs> surprise, everyone! I'm going to be judgmental about it. So, thank you for joining me to talk about fan fiction today. Thank you, listeners, for sticking with us in this first season. We have so many cool things already in the hopper for season two. I think it's going to be another really great, really fun season. We will be back with you probably within. I'm shooting for season two to start four weeks from now, but I will keep you posted on all of our social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, and also on the deconstructionworkers.com website. So for Natalie Shepard, I am Dr. Christopher Bell. We have been the Deconstruction Workers. Thank you, Natalie, for being with me today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, And we will see you in season two. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, 
or wherever you get your podcast fix. Feel free to check out thedeconstructionworkers.com, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thedeconstructionworkers, or Twitter at podcastdcw. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can donate as little as a dollar a month towards keeping the lights on at www.patreon.com slash podcastdcw. The Deconstruction Workers is recorded on the beautiful University of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus, 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for The Deconstruction Workers was composed by Raphael Crux. As always, please support alternative scholarship and public engagement. The Deconstruction Workers is copyright 2018, all rights reserved.